0: Um, it is the first iteration of an Aboriginal component to the Landcare funded program in New South Wales.
1: Working together—that's the spirit and the topic of my great conversation with Craig Aspinall from Landcare New South Wales. Presented in two episodes, and this is the second episode, part two.
0: My key takeout message for it is that we we think Australia is ready, and we think um, we know that Aboriginal people have always been ready to help heal country the time is right for all parties to come together.
1: Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a journey across our food and agricultural landscapes, as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable, fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I'm speaking with Craig Aspinall who is an Aboriginal man from the Birrapi Nation on the lower north coast of New South Wales, who has devoted his private and working life to the natural and cultural values associated with land and sea country. He's been a director of Ocean Watch since 2005 and is passionate about the work that Ocean Watch does. It's one of the 56 NRM regions in Australia, but it is the only marine-focused natural resource management organisation responsible for enhancing fish habitats and the marine environment. What we do on the land has a huge impact on the health of our oceans and marine biodiversity. And in this episode, I'm speaking with Craig about his role with Landcare New South Wales Working Together program, picking up on our previous conversation an episode or two ago to talk about the interface of landcare with marine environments, fire sticks burning and where to for this really exciting new program. Craig, You spoke at the recent Landcare Australia National Conference about the Working Together Program. And the title of your talk was, I really liked it, was Breaking the Barriers Between Landcare in New South Wales and First Nations Peoples, Recognition, Value, Collaboration. So back to where we left off in the previous episode, talking about the Working Together Small Grants Program. What's its focus and how's it being
0: taken up and by who? So we opened it for six months, um, heavily oversubscribed. We had um, um, 41 applications, 36 of those were approved, and um, 10 of those um, were Aboriginal applicants directly applying to us, which is fantastic. And those Aboriginal applicants also receive um, a year's free membership of Landcare New South Wales, being the peak body, and the benefits that that come along with that. Four of them were um, uh, projects that were uh, auspiced by a Landcare group, but essentially were an Aboriginal driven project. So things like a um the P and C committee of, of a of a school that's got 80% Aboriginal people. Obviously they're they're the parents and but they're not an incorporated association. So they're not an entity. And a school couldn't be an applicant because the school's already a government department. So it needed to be, you know, in terms of the eligibility for the grants, um schools didn't apply. But the PNC committee of the school can work with the Landcare group.
1: Yeah, yeah, get the get the resources and get on with what they want to do. Seventy thousand dollars spread across forty-one grants. They're obviously fairly small grants, but very meaningful. What are they generally used for? It's obviously not for buying capital and equipment. I mean, in terms of the spirit of what the program's about, what are those grants being used to do?
0: Yes, no, they're only um, up to two thousand so, dollars, so very small in scale. But you're right. It's to um, it's to to generate that pilot activity, that um, initial activity. And look, I said people were ringing me up early in the piece for ideas, and I resisted trying to to give people ideas. It's up to them to make contact with their local Aboriginal people, see what their aspirations are or what their desires are, and try and work with them to achieve them, or indeed just straight payment of an Aboriginal person to um, to tend something you already had organised. So. I do have a bit of a list of, of the types now that they've they've all come in and, and we've got a snapshot of them all. But the types of activities would be cultural awareness, education and field trips. Some were on country and, and some were in classroom um, formats. Um, cultural heritage identification and legislation workshops. So that's the very other side of the, the coin where this is if you find a site, what do you do under the legislation? How do you enter it into, your, into the database you know, for the state government?
1: Who do you talk to and who do you give ownership of that process to and all that sort of thing, yeah?
0: Well, absolutely. And look, uh, from the legislation point of view, um, I mean, there was a you know, fantastic um, couple of workshops I've been to at the Hunter and one down at Snowy Valleys as well. We went out on country, we did a walkover, we walked a paddock and we found artefacts and then we had to put those artefacts into the database. but. You don't pick up the artifacts you don't move them aboriginal objects are about them being where they are so interestingly at, at those workshops especially one at snowy's we had some farmers there and when they saw the types of stones and 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 objects that, that exist in in the environment they were like oh oh yeah no we found a couple of those rocks and and we just put them up against the tree so that the plow wouldn't get them next time and things like that and so like well good, good on you, you know, like it's you you didn't throw it away or you didn't let the plough destroy it. You thought it was a bit of a a strange rock and then maybe something significant and and you kept it there. So it's about those things being on country and being, you know, where they are. So uh, they were fantastic. And look, even for me as an Aboriginal man, you know, I didn't practice traditional practices as I explained in my upbringing. So here's me sitting there chipping away trying to do some stone work, you know, to produce a couple of blades and things like that at one of these workshops, which is really, you know, for me as an Aboriginal man, that was so enriching to just sit there and just go, and because it was really hard and it hurt my wrist (laughs) and I'm a golfer and I couldn't play golf for two weeks after that because my wrist was so sore and I'm going, ah, see, that's your old people punishing you for not immersing yourself in your culture earlier, you see, big fella, was what I was telling myself, (laughs) but it was really enriching. So the other types of things were um, inclusion of Aboriginal content into existing um, or planned land care activities or festivals, such as paying an elder for a welcome to country. And look, and those, those fees can be, they vary. And that was one of the things in the, in the you can't ask that thing, was um, how much do I pay for a welcome to country? Is there a database I can jump on to find an Aboriginal elder? No, there's not. But I mean, is there, you know, I mean, there's there's so many other aspects of Australian society where, where you can't find something easily. So why do you have the expectation that you're going to find it easily just because it's Aboriginal people? But anyway, I digress. Aboriginal presenters, uh, there was a fantastic day out with, um, hosted by um, Costa, Artis, who's a tremendous supporter of Landcare. but that was out at Forbes, an eco day with a bunch of school kids, getting uh, an Aboriginal guy in to um, do some activities with the kids. was fantastic. You know, that was such a small amount of money and such big for Bang Buck to have, you know, 300 kids exposed to Aboriginal culture because of one little grant that I did helping pay for an Aboriginal guy to attend an event that occurs every year. That
1: really it's seed funding for contact events almost from which a whole lot of other things will flourish. It's beautiful.
0: Yes, that's the word I was looking for. And I said, look, I don't care if you do poetry in the pub and you've got Aboriginal people and land care people together. Uh, it's about the relationship. I want to, this, this is seed funding for you to establish a relationship and for you to know that those Aboriginal people are there and available um, if that happens to be the case to support your land care activities and 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 build from there so i would have an expectation that those events that that we retrofitted or 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 funded an aboriginal component to i would hope that the subsequent festivals and events would have the aboriginal component budgeted as part of their normal proceedings in the planning for those events yeah so it's that little bit it's always been the case where uh, involving aboriginal people has been an afterthought for many years and I'd want it to be the forethought, not the afterthought. Just
1: really briefly, and only if it's okay to talk about, you said that ten of the grants were given to Aboriginal groups. what What sorts of projects were put forward by the Aboriginal proponents?
0: Hey, look, some of them were for um uh, Bush tucker gardens in their own area to you know provide food and, and have that um uh, cultural education for the the young fellows and the and the Aboriginal people there about the the um special plants and their uses but also just does food plants in, in remote areas, um, you know, where people struggle to get fresh fruit and vegetables. One, one example is a perfect example of how this program can support breaking barriers of Aboriginal people engaging with land care. We had a fella mm-hmm. who was all geared up to give a, an Aboriginal experience to some local land care people somewhere in New South Wales. Some issues arose in relation to insurance and him needing his own insurance and insurance is a big big issue for for a whole range of, of areas and and it's another discussion for another day but um, the quote that he'd received was was quite you know expensive greater than he he'd, he'd had previously and so i said well why don't you apply to a, for a grant to cover at least you know one year's insurance and then hopefully, you know, you can generate enough revenue getting paid to do these activities that you can then afford it from then. So that's breaking down a barrier. The barrier to that guy engaging with those land care people was that he didn't have the public liability insurance that the council needed for him to do that activity. So to me, that's a, it's a straight, perfect example of, of how to break the barriers. The other ones are generally, you know, land care activities, like I said, or, or, or gardens or um, I acknowledge 2,000 is very, very small, especially when, you know, we've got, the Black Summer Bushfires grants funding open at the moment is $280 million with applications up to 10 mil. So $2,000, but but the value we got out of that $2,000 and still occurring now, most of those grants, only a handful have been completed in that last financial year because I asked people to, you know, you don't have to have the elder's name written in there. You can just write, I seek to engage an Aboriginal elder to conduct a welcome to country at an event sometime at the end of the year. So I was that open and flexible and I made the form very easy to fill in and so all of those usual barriers that are deterrents for even land care people, let alone blackfellas, but um, to apply, I made it as simple as we possibly could.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. And, and as you say, break down the barriers, relationships enabled, connections made, and who knows, they may well pop up in some of those big bushfire recovery grants. So,
0: I hope so, and we definitely have had some. We have had some. So the North Coast's. Um, was the recipient of, in the Landcare-led Bushfire Recovery Fund that just went out to the tune of $14 million across Australia. A couple of significant Aboriginal applications were successful in that as well. That started from this program and and a small grant being provided. A workshop occurred. They said, yeah, we'd love to have an Aboriginal person. Oh, let's work towards, you know, putting an Aboriginal position or on or something larger scale. And here's this fund, let's put in the money for it. They got the money. Fantastic. Congratulations. That's fabulous.
1: The final or wrap-up panel discussion at the recent National Land Care Conference, at which you spoke, um, was all about cultural land management and integrating Indigenous perspectives for better land management. That panel discussion featured Victor Stephenson from the National Firesticks Alliance, Barry Hunter, Joe Morrison and Danny Gilbert, I think. Did you get to listen in to that panel discussion?
0: Yes, I did, yep. Yeah.
1: What were some of the key messages or issues from that conversation that really resonated with you and that you'd really like land carers and the Australian farming and broader community to be more aware of and to get behind.
0: My key takeout message for it is that we we think Australia is ready and we think we know that Aboriginal people have always been ready to help heal country. The time is right for all parties to come together and that notion of um, the amount of time that's 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 passed and and the sky hasn't fallen in relation to you know any of the land rights legislation on native title that was something that Joe Morrison said at that forum, so um, and that really resonated with me was was like you know, yeah you're right Joe we shouldn't be um, needing to to spend a lot of time educating people that that Aboriginal people aren't here to steal your land
1: we've moved on
0: <laughs> at the same time um, Doug the 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 chair of the uh, event. Um, did did refer to my my talk and it looks like one of my key takeout messages from my talk that p- hit people on the head was the need to pay Aboriginal people, you know, where there's economic benefits and you spoke earlier um, right at the start about, you know, some of these um, carbon economy and some of the investments that's going to come and, and landholders and farmers being paid now for biodiversity outcomes. You know, we've got a situation where Aboriginal people were dispossessed of land now those landholders through a range of land management activities, the landscape has led to its situation that it's in. And now they're going to get, so they've been able to get an economic benefit from farming that land and and using its resources. And now those activities may have impacted some areas of land, they're going to now get an economic benefit for fixing up the land. Both categories, or the first category, missed Aboriginal people out. We missed out, we didn't get taken along for the ride. Economically and socially, now I think we're ready to be brought along for the ride, and we should be. And there's all sorts of calls from you know social media and different areas, but you know, highly respected people and in, in academia and the like that this philanthropic aspect of 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 it should occur. So whilst Aboriginal people may not be the owners of the land that's that's having the biodiversity or the carbon credits investment and things like that. How can we enable Aboriginal people to be the beneficiaries of those benefits, obviously having including in the way that land's managed but also the returns for the carbon credits or whatever that, that are derived from those activities?
1: Through the knowledge that they contribute to those new management practices, also to access to doing those practices on, on lands that they have access to, or that they manage, or in partnership with farmers and across the broader landscape,
0: and also just just pull out your chequebook and and just be a nice guy. And how about you reward these people who've who've sat back for whatever reason have been at the lowest end of, of Australian society? And the closing the gap data reflects that. I'm not saying anything uh, infactual there that you you know contribute. I talked about four percent. So the one, the $1 million out of $22 million is around 4%. Aboriginal people are around 4% of the population of Australia. What is wrong with you donating 4% of your, of your profits of a large company or a significant superannuation company or you know any large sort of um, activity going on, mining, agriculture, whatever it is, is it not feasible for you to allocate 4% towards a philanthropic contribution to Aboriginal outcomes? And I'm not just saying gifting Aboriginal people cash,
1: healing people, healing country on country.
0: Yeah, and investing in them and asking them now, what do you want to do, you fellas? I've got 30 million here for you. Um, What are your dreams and aspirations? Well, we'd love a cultural centre there. We'd love to employ 10 fellas to manage that land there, and then you just help make it happen.
1: So one area that that that, uh, touches on, I mean, in the wake of the hideous bushfires, Aboriginal cultural burning. Uh, practices and traditional knowledge, you know, is really on the radar, not before time. And it's something that Aboriginal people and land care can potentially really move together on uh, across the landscape in ways that you've just suggested with proper funding and proper investment to really care for this place that is home to everyone if we want it. Practical issues around cultural burning on country. I think when we spoke earlier, you mentioned insurance and that's, it's something that big conservation groups are struggling with. Would you like to just give a little bit of a snapshot of what? The state of play is with cultural burning on country in the land care context.
0: Yeah, no, look, and I'm I'm far from an an expert, and, and you're right. The film that they showed uh, with Victor Steffensen and, and and Barry Hunter was was very very moving for me. Hit the nail on the head. It it really articulates it perfectly. What needs to be recognised is that Aboriginal people are are regaining this knowledge. So the the way to manage country by by burning in the Northern Savannah. Is very different to managing country burning in, in say the Central West or something of New South Wales. the the you know the plans are different and, and completely different and and people like Victor they they acknowledge that and and he's had a lot of input into training and delivering workshops and trying to upskill New South Wales Aboriginal communities in cultural burning. But at the same time, he doesn't say, look, you have to do it my, my way or this way. He's just looking at the indicators in the environment. You know, the film that was showed at the National Conference really pointed out to that. And he said, look, there's some areas we just don't use fire. There's some areas we, we still have to go in with, and do cut and paint the weeds by hand because fire isn't the way to manage that particular country. And I guess in terms of um, the nuts and bolts of the insurance industry and, and Australian society, insurance industries don't do a motion. Figures, it's risk, it's percentages. It's, it's what's occurred in the past and what's about to occur. So that needs to be addressed in some way because we've got this uh, massive interest in cultural burning throughout, certainly throughout the land care community. I've got you know, land care people, private landholders who are involved in land care who are ready to do cultural burning now, are ready to pay an Aboriginal person to come and do their hazard reduction burning in a culturally appropriate manner. There are practitioners out there, Ready to be that service provider, and are currently doing it. But when they have to rely on either a government department or some other body being there, or can't even get their own to cover, you know, the liability aspect of it, or can't even get their own insurance because we tried at Landcare New South Wales, we asked our insurers saying we think cultural burning is a Landcare activity because you said that we're covered for weed, weed management, threatened species management, things like that. Well animals we're saying cultural burning is just a way of doing those activities oh but only a western way of doing it must be acceptable so you're telling me that that the risks are greater with having a a handful of volunteers dealing with with glyphosate and things like that and chemicals you got machines you got bulldozers you know all these equipment that are used in in western ways of of land care or land management or, or conservation work and yet you're telling me that you know aboriginal people doing a little fire in the ground Yeah, basically because of the bushfires, um, anything that involves fire, we're not interested. So 50 underwriters basically said, we don't want to know about it. Don't want to cover it. So that's market failure. So when you have market failure, what happens? Well, the government has to step in and basically underwrite it. And that's what's happened with compulsory third-party insurance. There's other sectors of, of society that have market failure, You know, the number of car crashes we have and things like that. Um, there's no way an insurance company would would offer insurance for for cars unless it was underwritten by the government. So that's the position that we've recommended from a land care point of view to government. That um, this market failure, we've got tremendous interest. Even your government funding and your significant investment into NRM that you guys support has all cultural burning written in there, and you're all wanting that, You know, applications that have cultural land management processes in it. And that's all great. And these, these land care groups might get $100,000 to do cultural burning and then all of a sudden they can't deliver it because the Aboriginal people can't get the insurance to come out and do it. And it means that the landholder has to carry the liability. Aboriginal people come along and go, you know, sorry, we've, we haven't actually got our own public liability insurance because they won't give it. No matter how much money we've got, what do you do?
1: Yeah, it sounds like it's a bit of a work in progress though and you flagged the issue and outlined it really, really well because... You need the insurance. There's a lot of Aboriginal people who want to get out there and do it. There's a lot of landowners who want them to do it. But as you said, the film from Victor and his colleagues have presented, there's still a work in progress to know where it should and shouldn't and how it can and can't be done in different landscapes. Is that right?
0: That's it. They've just looked at it as, as anything that starts a fire bad. So, But when you look at Victor's, you know, the explanation of it and, and you see the type of fire that's being created and the way it's managed. And that film demonstrated it, you know they they started one for us to see there. It's low level, really low risk sort of stuff. And look, you can't have your fire authorities hanging around in case you know stuff goes bad, and that'd be part of your your risk management profile. So Aboriginal people can demonstrate all of those things in terms of the risk management, so they just need the support and the awareness of the insurance industry. And maybe a one, you know, an insurer can take the lead on it, and you know, really. Um, and I think they'll um, experience significant benefits if they, are uh, they, they were the first insurance company to back the cultural fire management industry in Australia.
1: It's a real opportunity for a progressive Australian corporate out there. Thank you for that. And it is called cool burning for a reason <laughs> yeah it is um, Craig when we spoke a while ago you referred to the Landcare Conference as an opportunity for a call to action and to grow working together and you've spoken about that throughout our conversation in lots of ways what's next where to for you in the program
0: we've got another action plan for this year with the steering committee and we only just met a few weeks ago so this is this is fresh off the press very timely to ask Anthea but um it's similar to last year so we talked about the small grants program and I wanted to say it's finished and we're not actually going to run that small grants program the same way. So what we're going to do is, and through various um, forums that we've had with the Land Care Network in New South Wales, the, the funded program coordinators I'm talking about, is um, to give them a bit more um, responsibility, give them that advocacy role. So rather than have the, the small scale activities that we talked about in those grants, having to come to me, do a grant application, write a contract. We're just going to give the regions of New South Wales a bit of a bursary amount and they distribute it as they see fit. I think everyone's sick of me whinging about pointing out that um, I'm just one guy for the whole state, you guys. So I think after 12 months building that confidence with these people, it's time for them to take a bit of a responsibility and um, and give them a bit of a small budget to do those smaller scale activities. The other aspect for this year's investment is and this is the real crux, is um, two significant large grant investments into two regions. And I sort of mentioned that earlier. North Coast was one of them, where they're going to put an Aboriginal position on. So this is this is me starting to test the waters of having an Aboriginal coordinator in each region. You know, there's a land care coordinator in each region. There are uh, 72 other local land care coordinators. Well, how about we have an Aboriginal land care facilitator or coordinator. In each region as well for the next iteration of the program and the next business case. So this was a bit—it was a pilot program. Let's throw four percent of the budget at at starting an Aboriginal thing, see how it goes. Fantastic. Um, I think it's really kick goals, and that's that's the feedback I'm getting from everyone out there. Sometimes small, detailed action creates huge outcomes for people out there, and it's it's funny when you think something's insignificant to you in what you've done to others, it can be hugely significant, and that's been a big realisation for me. So one of the other ones was I was going to do a small grants program, Anthea, but the steering committee, we talked about this mentoring aspect and I also talked about, pointed out the demographics of New South Wales as Aboriginal people. 70, nearly 80% of Aboriginal people in New South Wales live in urban and peri-urban situations, i.e. Sydney, Western Sydney. We have a lot of Aboriginal young people who haven't connected their country and culture. And I don't think that's a, a secret either. And there are a, a range of activities from all sorts of sectors, often focusing on disengaged youth or those yep. who are at risk or those who've had contact with the criminal justice system. And, and they are not excluded from, from what we're doing. Um, so we've come up with a Connecting the Country and Culture program for Aboriginal youth. We're going to support Aboriginal people to attend a camp or some sort of activity. And we're currently scoping out existing providers of those um, activities who are uh, currently doing it. And there's a number of them. And basically the sponsor, have a land care sponsorship of of a few cohorts of kids to go through in this financial year. Wow. Um, you know, probably in a school holidays or something, get out, connected to the country. It doesn't have to be their own mob's country. And a lot of these kids don't even know who their own mob is. And that's not what's important. It's about them getting out with some elders, preferably in the bush, getting them out of their comfort zone and just just getting them on country and, and experiencing a cultural experience. And it's fair to say from the literature review I've done and some of the articles and media on these types of things, they have the potential to change a young person's life and really turn them around, give them a direction, at the very least, help them with their identity. And that's significant as well. We thought if we could change a few people's lives and turn a few young kids around, and they'll always remember that they were sponsored by Landcare, They'll understand what landcare is about. So that's a long-term investment in in young people.
1: Oh, Craig, that is so exciting. That that resonates with a few things that we're doing at Foodswell, and that I'd love to speak with you about. I had a series of questions to wrap up with, uh, which which went to the heart of Ocean Watch. Yes, which I know is one of your deep, deep passions. Ocean Watch is such an amazing organisation, isn't it? It is the National NRM Organisation for Our Marine Environment. And you're the you're a director of it. You have been since 2005.
0: Yeah, look, and I won't take up t- too much time on, on this aspect, but I've always had an interest in in the marine environment. I grew up on the coast. I'm a coastie. I went surfing every day when I was a kid, um, fishing and everything, growing up at beautiful Foster Tunkari. How could you not do that? Um, no, you're right. And it's important that um, the marine environment, doesn't get lost in the narrative of land care because it's always at risk, or it's always been on the fringe. And, and I've got interest in, in the seafood industry as well.
1: You love the ocean, you grew up on it.
0: That's right. And I was involved many years ago in a a, a project called Our Valuable Estuaries, which was really trying to paint that picture of the connection between land and the sea. You know, land that goes well inland, rivers flow into the sea. So your land management activities as a farmer. 50 kilometres inland or even 100 kilometres inland from the coast, the amount of sediment that you're putting into that waterway can impact things down in, you know, that the fisherman doesn't get his prawns coming out of that estuary, you know, that season. Project in that was here in Newcastle, and I'm proud to say that uh, we've got um, a significant uh, environmental area just near where I live, which is called Hexham Swamp, and Hexham Swamp had some floodgates installed many years ago so that the uh, land could be um, drained and used for agriculture for cows at the uh, Catchment Management Authority, which I've worked at for some years, a huge project, significant project for them was to open those floodgates. It's been happening for years. But wanted the floodgates open get the tidal flow back in, get the mangroves in, let's restore it to what it was. So that occurred, cut a long story short, that occurred, which is fantastic. But an old fisherman I spoke to, old old Frankie Hyde, um, who's a boat builder and, and commercial fisherman in Newcastle, he said that following year's prawns were the best season they'd had for decades. To me, that's that's a direct corollary to those opening of those floodgates and then seeing that environmental flows, the whole ecosystem being rebuilt. So mm-hmm. now I have tremendous interest in that area. I've um, been on the on the board for, for that amount of time. It started with that Our Valuable Estuaries project, which was about a resource for schools. So we've heard paddock to play. This one was called, it was under the, the theme of Ocean Watchers programs at the time, which is called Tide to Table. I love it. (laughs) So it's, uh, you know, basically telling kids, um, you know, we had fishermen doing presentations to kids at school saying how they fished and what they used and what nets they used. And those kids are so fascinated with that. And so I'm a really strong advocate for our primary producers of the ocean being considered equally on an equal footing, all aspects of society, as primary producers on the land. If they were as strong as, as something like the National Farmers Federation, hats off. We've got a full circle back to Rick Farley again, Anthea. To some extent, the marine environment is always at risk of being left behind through policy and discussion and in land care. And so uh, I'm particularly interested in making sure that the marine environment is always represented at the table.
1: Oh, fantastic. So that might be yet another of your big uh, agendas for this project and for the connections around communities of practice, connecting Landcare and Ocean Watch. And, of course, Landcare does have some, it has Ausfish and it has Ocean Watch, but there's huge opportunity to make those terrestrial and marine connections much more explicit and much stronger, aren't there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's all about providing food
1: and getting plastic out of the waterways. We
0: could go on about that for a few hours as well. Yeah, I just saw in the news last night a poor old whale had a big net entangled on him, and look, Ocean Watch has done a range of things in relation to ghost nets. The sea rangers in the Carpentaria were funded by us for many years to, to collect the um, the ghost nets, and a lot of them come from Indonesia. It's not necessarily Australian domestic fishermen who are cutting those lines free. Yeah, we're really bad for the environment, but uh, a great story. And then that filament, that those nets, that nylon filament, getting sent to Melbourne and having that process reversed and getting turned back into the petrochemical of which it started to then be used into producing other products, that's that full circle thing that I really, really loved.
1: Yeah, there's a lovely other project that Ocean Watch does at the moment called Living Shorelines where they take uh, used or, or, you know, finished oyster shells and, and bundle them all up and do this pretty significant landscape-wide uh, erosion management on the shoreline with old oyster shells
0: and so forth. I just thought that was beautiful and closed loop as well. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And look, that, you know, be a surprise amount of permits and, and bureaucracy you got to get through just to do a project like that. But And the logistics, you've got to go collect the shells from the, the back of the restaurant door, you know, when they finished each week sort of thing, and the engineering in relation to how and where they get placed along the shoreline. But you're right, it's a fantastic project for an environmental practice that can both address erosion, but it's also addressing fish habitat. That's the full picture.
1: Okay, Craig, what's the best way for people to learn more about and get involved in working together? It's the best thing to do, just get in touch with your local land care group, go to the website. Where, where would you like to direct people who are wanting to join the cause?
0: The land care program itself, I'd encourage them to familiarise themselves with, with the program and their local group. And you can do that via two places, the Landcare New South Wales website, As the peak body, or what we call the Gateway website, which is the Landcare Programs website, which is um, landcare.nsw.gov, that's gov.au, and the Landcare New South Wales one is landcare.nsw.org.au. And both of those, they've got my Working Together Aboriginal page on them, which I update regularly. And some of those um, new initiatives I, I mentioned before, I'm about to put on there with the new action plan. Um, for this year, pretty much announcing those and those resources in terms of the you can't ask that webinar. If you want to sit through the two hours of watching me and 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 a lovely young Aboriginal lady, you know, answering questions, you can. But if you want to cut to the shortcut, I've got a word document with the thirty-three questions and what our responses were. And on that, Anthony, I meant to say earlier, there's a funny one.
1: Tell me, tell me what Someone, <laughs>
0: someone said, is there an Aboriginal restaurant? And I'm just like, so, so some of my answers for the questions. Were, were basically, because a lot of them are just pure laziness. I said, feel free to jump on Google. Feel free to jump on your, your favourite search engine and look up um, Indigenous restaurants because, you know, there may be restaurants that are Aboriginal-owned that, that are doing regular food. There may be restaurants that are non-Aboriginal-owned but they focus on on native spices. So there's a range of different things and I just thought, wow, is that, that was the most pressing question for someone was to find out if there was an Aboriginal restaurant, can I get a recommendation from you? And I thought, God, what a bizarre compared to something about that draws deeply on your identity and and your Aboriginal thing. And then the next question is, oh, can I get an Aboriginal restaurant recommendation from you? Um, I found that one really amusing. If you want to learn about Aboriginal people, don't wait for a a webinar, you know, from from an Aboriginal officer or you've got Google on your phone, have a look up, punch in some search things, you know, uh, Aboriginal history of, of where you live. You know, so many people saying, how do I find out the Aboriginal tribe where I live? There's maps on the internet, so everyone wants to get to the shortcut and the and the, the quick answer. And unfortunately, a lot of times they're disappointed when I point out to them there's no easy answer. There's no directory of Aboriginal elders for for Dubbo, or there's no you know there's no directory of Aboriginal elders for for anywhere. You need to find them, talk to them respectfully, open up a relationship. It's not just yeah, you know, yes, you might be paying for their services, but it's more than that. It's not just a Straight, oh, I'm hiring a caterer to come and cater for this this event. The business relationship needs to be a little bit more um more meaningful for those people.
1: Great, thank you for that. <laughs> I was going to ask you as a last question, but I think we may have covered it, and I think we might be running out of time. Um, <laughs> if you had an unlimited budget and your dream team, what would be your top ticket, big aspiration or outcome for New South Wales Landcare and Aboriginal? partnerships and participation in it in 10 years' time.
0: Well, I think I'll draw on that um that employment side of it. I, I'd like to see yet more more Aboriginal positions that are in in the land care portfolio, so separated from government. I have a, a lot of fantastic colleagues who work in government departments in in Aboriginal roles, you know, delivering great work, but it has its limitations. And so I want I want to see a whole lot of Aboriginal positions similar to me. Across New South Wales and the country, and I think my presentation at the national conference called on my other states and territories to do so. Is to yeah get some bodies on the ground because we we are your resource where where you go to you know we'll give you the advice you know we'll protect you from maybe you know you know negative things you might experience or or you know we'll be the chaperone if the facilitator the referral point. So I need people out in the regions who are free to basically. Deliver um, as I'm delivering and delivering as the land care coordinators are delivering. they they have certainly have levels of autonomy to work in their own patch with their own landcare people. Obviously we want them thinking strategically with a bit of a helicopter view, but they they work with their own people. they need Aboriginal resources to call on and to have you know one program and one guy for the state is a great start, but the level of demand that's out there cannot be met in its current form. So we need more bodies on the ground. I'll leave it at that, Anthea.
1: Fantastic. And they can get those Youth on Country programs happening too, which I would love to see.
0: Get the young fellas in there, yes.
1: Any final quick comments or call-outs you might like to
0: make? No, I'd just like to thank you for for inviting me to the Podcast and any listeners want to get in touch, um, you know, if they want to reach out to you or go direct to those websites that I mentioned. But my first thing was if it's in a land care context, get in touch with your local land care group and they can help put you in touch with uh, whoever they might be working with in that area.
1: Craig, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. And I I am going to come back to you for some further conversations. We could go on for hours and there's just so much, so much to learn about and share. Um, All power to you and to the communities you're working with. I just love your work and um, thank you, Craig. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and stay in touch via instagram at nourishing underscore matters and on facebook at nourishing matters to chew on if you like what you hear and would like to support us you can buy us a coffee or donate at givenow.com.au backslash nourishing or give us a rating and a review in your favorite podcast app so other people can find us too Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.